This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international programme of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. They haven't run out of history quite yet. Welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett, and I'm here today at the Hilton uh, Hotel in Birmingham, just across the road from the National Exhibition Centre, where the big Star Trek convention is going on this weekend. And I'm joined by, I think, the largest group we've ever had for a recording of Primitive Culture. Uh, rather than me try and uh, introduce all my guests, I'm just going to go around the circle and everyone can introduce themselves. Some of them are familiar voices uh, from Trek FM and from, from Primitive Culture. Uh, others may be guests that we haven't had before and that we're delighted to have with us today. Hi, it's Tony Robinson from Continuing Mission and Melodic Treks. Hello. Hi, it's uh, Rob Chapman. I'm at Trekkie Rob on Twitter and I run a Star Trek book club. Hi, it's Rick Everson. I'm at Trek Van Rick on Twitter and I'm on the 10 Backward podcast. Lee Hutchison, sometimes special guest on uh, Primitive <laughs> Culture. Not special guest, but it's always recurring special. guest. It's always special <laughs> when you're a guest. Hi, I'm Cara Cook and I'm another host of Primitive Culture. And this is Tony Black, formerly a host on Primitive Culture before I was relieved of command by Captain Jellico. <laughs> this is a very special occasion, actually, to get the three of us recording together. Yeah. This is it's like Primitive Culture is uh, Corate or something. <laughs> when all three of us are in the room together. That's you know that's a, a rare event, but uh, it's great to have both both of you you know with me, and great to have everyone else with me as well yeah. today. Um, the topic we're going to talk about is uh, it, it might sound like a slightly obscure one. But I'm going to try and explain it. it, it it's it's weekly rep or as I think of it in the context of this episode, Trekly Rep. And the reason that I wanted to talk about this is a few years ago, I read an interview with Patrick Stewart. And unfortunately, I haven't been able to find this interview, you know, this weekend. If anyone out there can find it and can send me the link, point me towards the actual original, I'd love to read it again. But basically what he said, someone was asking him, what was it like working on Star Trek? And he said, well, for me, uh, it was quite a familiar experience because as a young actor at the start of my career, I'd kind of cut my teeth on Weekly Rep. And for anyone who isn't familiar with the concept of weekly rep, um, I don't know if they have it in the States in the same way, but certainly in the UK and certainly back kind of in the day when Patrick Stewart would have been starting out, 
It's much less common these days because of the kind of economics of theatre and so on. But young actors, the first jobs that they would get coming out of drama school would nearly always be with one of these weekly repertory companies somewhere around the country. And what it would be is they would they'd audition a load of people, they would get a company together for the season, and within that company they'd have a kind of spread. So they would have the young actors, they'd have the kind of romantic leads and so on. They'd have probably an old guy. They'd have, you, you know, these the sort of almost these kind of archetypal casting brackets in a sense. And between that company, they would know that they could cover the parts in kind of a very broad smattering of plays and then week by week the actors would they'd be performing one play in the evening and then rehearsing in the daytime for the play they were going to perform the following week so it was a good kind of uh, proving ground in a way for young actors because they get to try out loads of different roles they get to kind of really push themselves and they get used to the idea of okay you know this week I might be playing a Nobel Prize winning scientist uh, next week I'm playing a, a reanimated rabbit or you, you know whatever it is <laughs> probably you didn't get that much so much when Patrick Stewart was coming up but you know you might be doing Shakespeare for example it's a different Shakespeare play every week or whatever um, and I just thought it was really interesting this idea that you know we know Patrick Stewart of course was a theatre actor we know a lot of Star Trek actors actually come from that theatre background and this idea that Star Trek because it's so varied uh, week by week sort of has that similar quality and particularly what you get in Star Trek which I think is quite unusual is you get these episodes where the same actors are literally playing different people so uh, the kind of real that I think the kind of high watermark of that for me would be uh, the episode Far Beyond the Stars which very much you know if you took out the kind of sort of wraparound bits with Cisco on Deep Space Nine is almost like a play in its own right that's been written for this existing cast uh, and you know you get these great actors and you give them different roles kind of meaty roles and they throw themselves into it so I'm just kind of curious what other episodes for the rest of you kind of stand out uh, in that kind of Trekley rep category that you know and, and what does it mean really when we have these kind of familiar actors not playing the role that they're listed as in the credits but actually playing someone else well, you've thrown me because I was like in the middle of taking a picture <laughs> Tony so, was busy uh, so, uh, so, uh, I'm, I'm tweeting about this. tweeting I mean, texting I, else <laughs> I think the most <laughs> obvious one to go to is probably uh, Far Beyond the Stars probably mm. considered one of the the best episodes of Deep Space Nine and in general is that this is someone where they immediately fall into different characters some of them are kind of police officers, some of them are um, newspaper editors, journalists, you know, a person working in a shop, they immediately can fit into that and then back to their normal kind of roots the next week and stuff. And I think that's such a great one where it shows, and I think it's the fact that it's sort of a retro kind of historical vibe as well, kind of takes you into that kind of mindset of you need to be all of these things to, to work in this kind of environment. And you get that interesting twist, I think, in that episode as well, that you get René Auberginois kind of playing almost the villain of the piece mm. and Armin Shimmerman playing this really kind of passionate uh, advocate of kind of civil rights and kind of a progressive outlook, which obviously is so different from his character normally in DS9. And, you know, those two in particular, I mean, I think everyone does a great job in that episode, but those two in particular, it's always fascinating to watch, <coughs> partly to see them without the makeup, but also just to see them playing characters that are very different from the characters that we kind of expect from them. With the killing game? Count yeah, well. definitely, definitely. Yeah, you've got pretty much the whole crew um, taking on World War Two um, roles. It's quite interesting. So yeah, uh, Jane Ray and well, yeah, I suppose the crew is the Resistance and the French Resistance and, um, and the GIs as well. Yeah, you know, oh yeah, yeah, Dakota of course. Yeah, yeah. The kind of gung ho GIs. Yeah, yeah. Jerry Ryan singing as yeah. well. You know, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be a yeah. a jack of all trades, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for an episode like that to work, you need, you know, you need someone like Kate Mulgrew who can, who can't just play Captain Janeway. She can play this kind of nightclub owner. And she's doing that on probably like a couple of days 
with the script to kind of think about it and get into this new character and completely sell that character as a kind of distinct person. And I suppose maybe that's one of the things, maybe one of the reasons that Star Trek has often cast theatre actors is they do need people who can kind of do that kind of work. I mean, when we were talking uh, yesterday, we were interviewing Jeffrey Combs and we were asking, you know, how do you differentiate all the different roles that you play? And you definitely got the sense with him, the reason they kept hiring him again and again was they knew he would come in, he'd look at the script, he, he'd, he'd create a new character that wasn't just what he'd done before uh, and they could kind of rely on him to do that. I suppose the only difference between Far Beyond the Stars and Killing Games, <laughs> obvious, the obvious difference, is that you, a lot, all those characters, although they're taking on different roles, they're still in there. You know, Neelix still has all his yes, yeah, gear, yeah. and Seven still has a bit, so they're not completely taking on new roles. But yeah. Well, it is almost like their, their sort of personality has been suppressed yeah. and replaced by this yeah. other personality in a sense. One of, one of the best ones, and I've, you know, I'm lucky that you've been very prepared, Duncan, and you've written down possible episodes. <laughs> looking over my shoulder. This is how Tara and I spent our lunch hour. Was it's good. One of the ones you've got on there is Aman Bashir, which is a good example of one where for most of them, their personalities are completely consumed by something else. Obviously, all the Bond villain tropes and the Bond girl tropes, and you've got, you know, Nana Vista and Kira doing Major Nerius Kira and all that stuff. Yeah. And she's fantastic. And she's brilliant, she's yeah. And brilliant then Harry Brockson should really play a Bond villain anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so good yeah. as that kind of powerful Dr. Noah. Yeah. And then, of course, it's, you know, it's, it's Bashir who's himself and Garak who's playing himself. But apart from that, yeah, you, re- but you really get part of the reason that episode's so good works so well and I think that's one of the best episodes of Deep Space Nine for me is because you believe that these characters they're playing are these archetypes these tropes and they love it they have such a great time the actors clearly love having a day off yeah. from their normal parts and playing these, ca- these characters so whenever you see interviews as well with these people like what was your favourite episode or tell us a great time it's always like they always the episodes where it wasn't them on the it's bridge, the weird one it wasn't yeah. them on the Paramount <laughs> set it was like sure. you know we were off set here we were doing like James Bond that day yeah. anytime that they could because you think of like 170 odd episodes in this thing pretty much the similar stage every day you yeah. know on the bridge sets anything to get away from that anything to be different yeah. always stands out to them And because I'm sure like you always always think of it when they, they get asked what was your favourite episode oh it was that one that was like that I can't remember the name of the episode of the title but if it was something a bit different, oh yeah, Arman Bashir, oh, it was rejoined or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's not going to be the episode where they go to a planet and there's a trade conference and then one of them gets, <laughs> no. like, you know, has a conversation with it. It's like, no, it's not that one. Yeah. It's yeah. the one where yeah. they end up like, you know, or for Patrick Stewart, it's the one where he's basically John McClane. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Gets yeah. to do something different. Yeah. Which is, which is true. And I mean, you could say that, you know, action movie Picard, which you kind of get in that episode and you kind of get in the movies, is almost playing a different character to Jean-Luc Picard. And certainly like in First Contact, there's that bit. I always found it very jarring, actually. When he comes out, he and Lily have gone into the holodeck. He's done the Dixon Hill. And then he comes out and he says to her, we gotta get to the bridge. And he does it in an American accent. And it's like <laughs> it's it's a really strange moment because you're like, that's that's not Captain Picard. Are you still playing <laughs> Susan Hill? What the hell's going on here? You know. And there's that kind of he's he's getting almost I think by the time you get to the movies, he's playing Dixon Hill as if he kind of really wants to be Dixon Hill. When you watch like the good big goodbye, Patrick Stewart is playing Picard hopelessly bad at playing Dixon Hill. Do you know what I mean? So there's this kind of question of when are they acting? When are they aware of it? Because in the killing game, they're not acting. They are, are unaware. Their minds have been wiped. So they, they think they are that person. Uh, whereas... But you see, I, I don't know if it's always clear because then in something like Bride of Chaotica, we're supposed to believe that Janeway is playing Queen Arachnia 
And I don't know, I don't see much of Janeway in that. I see Kate Mulgrew having a great time playing Queen Arachnia. Do you know what I mean? We yeah, kind of, yeah. you sort of buy that Janeway, aside from all her many talents, is a brilliant actress in a way that Picard is not a good actor. Do you actor. know what it probably <laughs> is? Is that Think of it like the beginning of Next Generation, like the big goodbye. The holodeck is brand new technology. You mm. know, you don't really kind of probably know what to do in that environment. Do you just sort of play yourself, kind of hang around in these spaces? So by the time you get to see something like Killing Game, Bride of Chaotica, it's second nature to these people. They've grown up with it. It's been technology for decades in their mm. life. They get to just a natural mindset. We'll play something a bit different. We'll really embrace the kind of the rulers. Perhaps it's a novelty factor at that kind of early stage. I think it could as well be. It could as well be that, um, in a way, all the all the characters they play on Star Trek. I think when you when you a lot of them when you listen to the, the actor speak. There is a lot of them in the, when they that they put into mm-hmm. these parts, you know. Especially someone like Kate Mulgrew, you know. You really, you really, when you when you when you listen to Janeway and then you see her playing other roles, you can see the same kind of traits that she performs in the same way she does it. So maybe that's why we don't always get the feeling that it's Janeway playing Chaotica as opposed to Kate Mulgrew playing Chaotica. So there's that because there's there's always that little blend. I, in a way, I think the best actors are the ones who almost put themselves and their own mannerisms into the characters they play it sounds like it would be the opposite but I don't think it is I think it's you really believe the character because you believe that there's a naturalism to it I think that's what it is but there can be a kind of pleasure to doing it badly almost in a way because like I I love A Fistful of Data that's one of my favourite sort of guilty pleasure next gen episodes and I actually particularly love Marina Sirtis in that episode and loads of people have said to me you know her accent's terrible what the hell is she doing you know this is such a weird episode <laughs> but she just seems like you were saying she seems to be having so much fun mm. and you actually can't tell is it Marina Sirtis having fun or is it Deanna Troy having fun but I almost don't care yeah, uh, no, that's what you mean, it's yeah. like there's just so much pleasure in it because mm. it is it is different it's very different from Councillor Troy who's quite sort of uh calm and measured and serious yeah. it's both of them having fun I think yeah um, I was thinking Hollow Pursuits yeah as yeah. well because we've got examples that um, the crew have their own personalities suppressed and play someone else against their will almost mm. or they go in there and play something for the fun or for the need Hollow Pursuits is someone else's interpretation of them and they get to play another character's idea of what they are like to different extremes in Hollow Pursuits because um we have Barclay's 10 forward simulation where he gets to be the tough guy yeah. or we have the really extreme version with the goddess of empathy. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a whole different... It's, it's and a kind of pathetic Riker as well. Yeah. Like this sort of ridiculous version of Riker. Yes, the, the, the short enthusiastic yeah. one <laughs> waving his sword about. Yeah. Um, but you also then get um, Barclay in two different versions. You get him as he wants to be playing himself on the holodeck mm. and then you get his real world persona. So he kind of has his own double... Uh, double performance in that as well which is a really interesting way to introduce that character I think I mean, I've always mm. thought it's strange that the first time we see Barclay he's not really Barclay do you know what I mean I mean he is Barclay but like he's playing this he's, he's acting he's playing this role this fantasy basically we get to know him through his fantasy of who he wants to be rather than who he really is somehow and I think that's a very surprising way of introducing a character yeah. in some ways but almost by showing you what they're not mm. It's also that weird situation in some of the episodes where the um, actors actually playing ancestors of their characters, mm-hmm. like Paul is playing one of her ancestors, or isn't there an episode where Jane went? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they're sort of—it's weird because their ancestors almost seem exactly like them, you know, and you, like they're just playing a, a version of themselves in a different time period, except that it's not really them; it's some sort of distant ancestor. I feel like with Kate Mulgrew, actually, in that episode, she does play it. I know what you mean. She like it is very obvious. She's she's not she's not Jeffrey Combs. 
disappearing into the role, if you know what I mean. I feel like she does play it differently. She's not quite... It's hard to put your finger on, but she's not quite she's Janeway somehow. Yeah. I don't know whether with a Vulcan character it's harder because so much of Topol is this kind of mannerism anyway, mm-hmm. and that is a kind of Vulcan mannerism, and it's almost like that would be even more of a challenge, like play two different Vulcans and make them seem like different people. You know, and even Jeffrey Combs hasn't had to do that as far as I know. I don't think he's ever had to play two... He hasn't played two Andorians, do you know what I mean? And I suppose with Star Trek you get all this stuff from the like the, the species that you're playing that kind of feeds into the personality because, you know, if you're a Klingon, you're probably quite angry and tough and, like, you know, brawling around. And if you're a Vulcan, you're probably very cool and logical and so on. Isn't and that must a... kind of impact the individual characterization as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. But isn't there, just going back to Jeffrey Coombs, isn't there, a, 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 like, a theory that he does play Wayun slightly differently the second time with the second Wayun? Because the first way he gets killed, doesn't he? He's, he yeah. can't remember the episode. Mm. Season five, maybe to the yeah, death, to the death, yeah. to the death. Okay, yeah. neck snap, doesn't and then yeah, no, no, season four, yeah, 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 that's right. But then, and then gets, it has a neck snapped in season seven. Okay. That's it, right? He does yeah. 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 so got like three, three or four. Well, well, he plays a few ways, doesn't he? That's an interesting point. Treachery, faith, yeah, clearly very different. Yeah, warm and caring. So that's interesting, isn't it? That the whether that was a creative decision on the part of the writers or it was Jeffrey Coombs one, taking that material and going, right, I'm going to play this character you know. Mm. Yeah, he's still going to be a bad guy, but I'm going to inflect it with different... Like you say, one of them could be warmer, mm. one of them is evil. Yeah, it's, it's just, that's a really interesting way. I mean, he's benefited playing a clone is that you can you have the freedom to do that. But he could have just played Wayun the same. Mm. And uh, he brings more to the character in that it's not... And that gets you into the question of clones and souls and are they the same but you know that the idea is that they come where you may be a clone and the same clone but he's not the same person i suppose it's the and situations that he's put into like the first time well, the yeah. first clone he's you know they're hunting down these jemadar so he's a bit more annoyed mm. second one he's in that proper what i think they call the vor sometimes the salesman of the galaxy yeah and they're kind of like yeah yeah we can be your friend oh captain you're wonderful and you know they're even when they're trying to about to go to war he's still kind of turning on that charm you see the other one you know he's a proper kind of leading of the war really so maybe so, he's the writing then yeah as much as the as much as the acting I don't yeah. know I think I'm very much I probably think of the situation these clones are dropped into that right that's you popped out but the personality is always going to be certainly different to what situation that they're getting kind of mm. parachuted into really but they're kind of subtle differences I suppose that's the thing isn't it they're not playing it's not quite uh, Cisco playing the, the villain in the Bond do you know what I mean they're not they're not like big larger than life kind of characters they're not kind of big differences like that um, they're not even like I, I was thinking I thought Clara you were going to say about the um, like the episodes we see where the characters actually like in Hollow Pursuits have been misconstrued so say in Voyager you've got Living Witness uh, you've got author author both stories in which one way or another you get these kind of distorted versions of these characters behaving in ways that are quite unlike them and part of the sort of pleasure of those episodes is seeing Janeway as this kind of scary you know evil <laughs> evil kind of uh, Captain Janeway and see- seeing everyone with this kind of darker side and of course we get that again in the Mirror episodes because I mean when I was thinking about this I was thinking the, the kind of episodes that come to mind for this you get you know you get quite a lot from TNG DS9 Voyager Enterprise and Discovery, I couldn't think of. Until Clara said, you know, yeah, there is that episode where T'Pol plays her ancestor. But again, as you say, she plays it very similar. Um, I don't feel like those series have as much fun with this idea of giving the actors something different to do, except when they go to the Mirror Universe. And the Mirror Universe is kind of this license to 
play it all differently, you know, to reinvent your character, to look at this kind of alternate version. Maybe where it comes back to technology that in the next generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, you have the holodeck and the holodeck can always be used for all these different things, even sort of the one where they're the evil versions of themselves. It's a holographic version that the Doctor's written. It's a holographic version that this planet has that, hey, this is Voyager from hundreds of years ago. This is like, it's maybe not a technology that's around in Enterprise, apart from that pregnancy episode of the trip. And then discovery where they can sort of maybe be a bit free with it. Like, right, you're in Ireland. You are you know, Dr. Bashir as James Bond sort of thing. That's not there, so they maybe don't have the license to be so creative. But what's the interesting thing about this is when I watched episodes on the holodeck, and I know that these are actors acting parts, right? So acting as their profession, acting as something they enjoy, they've chosen to do it as a profession. But when you think about the characters, we're talking about people who are scientists, who are people who, you know, have been in the military. We're talking about, you know, navigators, pilots. I just question how much they would enjoy going into the holodeck and pretending. Now, and in our lives as individuals, you know, we might read. Obviously, when you're a little kid, you, so you're kind of losing your imagination when you read or you watch television. Um, when you're doing a podcast, you're using your mind and imagination. When you um, go to a convention, you dress up as a character, but we're not all going to the convention and like acting to each other like we're all members of Starfleet. Like, I'm not greeting Duncan and being like, Captain, Captain Barrett. You know, <laughs> Sadly, like, if that only. Brilliant. Really, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, had a good point, associate producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not like pretending that I don't know Duncan as a person. I'm saying, you know, like, oh my God, it's an alien. You know, so, and if you're not an actual actor, <laughs> as you can tell, I'm not, um, then. I don't know, it just always seemed weird to me that they're so willing that then their spare time to go into the holodeck and pretend with each other. It's a little bit like their kids. Do you know what I mean? Pretending. Well, there is that episode where uh, Beverly is trying to get Picard to be in her play and he's like, oh no, I, I, I'm not much of an actor. I didn't want to be in the play or whatever. And then she offers him the part of the butler and he sort of looks slightly <laughs> annoyed. Right? He's like, well, if I was going to be in the play, at least I could have been given a decent part. Yeah. But... I don't know. I, yes, I suppose that is true. Like realistically, certainly in terms of the on onboard theatre, would if you took a random group of people, would you be able to rope everyone into the theatre? Although I have to say, you know, and sorry, I have promised in the past to stop banging on about this subject, but in the Channel Islands during the Second World War. <laughs> Two percent of the population of Guernsey ended up in the amateur dramatics companies, which is like quite a like a much larger percentage than yeah. you would normally expect in the population, and that's because there was nothing else to do. And on a starship, you know, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> and I do think the idea of like, you know, I'm not an actor, I'm not going to do any acting or whatever, or I'm not going to engage in this game, I'm not going to pretend this person's someone that they aren't, is partly because we are we're embarrassed by all of that and I think actually a lot of people they want permission to be able to kind of play those games like their kids if you go to secret cinema if you go to like a punch drunk show you know any of these kind of immersive theatre experiences basically where you do get to dress up you do get and it's not just you dress up in your cosplay and and, and that's that's what you're doing you, you know it's a whole kind of world that is built around you like the holodeck people love it and they're not all actors going along to these things or people who like want to be doing amdram or whatever they're just ordinary people but for that one night they get to pretend to be someone else they get to have this kind of amazing adventure they wouldn't have had so I sort of wonder whether actually there is this kind of untapped potential in people for that kind of play Maybe in Starfleet they're they're better at kind of, because they've got the holodeck at kind of teasing that out, teasing out that kind of playfulness. I always think of like I know it sounds bizarre, but 
I remember going to like a shooting range in America, which is something completely alien to us here in the UK. Mm. You could never imagine going off, shooting off some rounds. When I was there, I had the gun in my hand, you know, a target thing to play. I was sitting there thinking, I really want to play it, pretend like I'm uh, John McLean and you know, <laughs> say some of the lines and stuff. And I think when you're put in an alien environment like that, you find that sort of creative side of you comes out. You know, you feel you can be a bit different. It's not your usual kind of environment. And I can imagine being in an environment where I'm pretending to be James Bond. All I've had some of the props. I'd feel like swaggering around and there's no one else there to kind of perhaps tell you otherwise. Uh, I, I think you'd find that it would be very popular in the sense of... Um, I, there's, I don't know if any of you have read or seen the film Ready Player One. Yeah. yeah. But in, the, in the book, there is... And it's not... I think it might be in the film, but in the book it's talked about how the technology has advanced that films now essentially become um, almost like a game that you, instead of just watching a movie, you say the lines along with the movie and you're in it. You're in like a virtual space. So you choose your favourite film, whether it's, I don't know, know, Star Trek, The the Wrath of Khan, and you're playing Kirk, but you're sitting there watching the TV, but you're saying the lines, you're immersed in the world. The holodeck is sort of the advancement of that, really, isn't it? And it's that whole idea. I I thought in Ready Player One, I thought that idea would so take off. Imagine having a Netflix, but a Netflix where you put put a chip in your head or you put some glasses on and you're like in the film saying the lines and getting the satisfaction of being, like Lee said, the one that says, make my day, punk. You know, that kind of thing, (laughs) right? And then, you know, you get some gratification there. But the holodeck, because like you said, it's the escape it's the fantasy element. They haven't got anything else on that ship, essentially. Um, which is also something I find hard to believe. Because surely by then they'd have found other ways to entertain, I don't know, entertain themselves. But, yeah, I, th- I think there's the fantasy element, and I think the, the, the role-play aspect, I think they were a lot less embarrassed by it by the, in the 23rd, 24th century. Now everyone would be a bit, oh. but I think as time went on, you would find that that would change. Although, in our man Bashir, Bashir is really not happy that Garrick is there, initially. He's like, this is my... That it's his. This yeah, is my... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is like... That's there true. is that uh, level of embarrassment. And all the way through, Garrick is slightly teasing them about it, you know, and the fact that it... Because, it, 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 you know, Alman Bashir is clearly like this sort of male... It's wish a wish fulfillment, yeah. He yeah. gets to fire the guns. He gets all the women kind of throwing yeah. themselves at him. It is, it is That's ridiculous. True, there's in that life yeah. as well. Like, think of it now that, you know, we have our public personas and then there's like online avatars mm. on whether it's games, Twitter, mm. social media, where people can say hateful things lovely things they can confess feelings they have for an opposite sex in a safe space and when maybe perhaps someone goes in that they know where it's like your mum was following you <laughs> that immediately explodes that idea of like I thought this was somewhere safe that yeah, I could yeah. true. you my aunt true. you, you saying Garrick is, is Bashir's mum in that <laughs> <laughs> I think he is a man of many talents <laughs> I always saw that moment though is similar to when so you're watching some programme and someone comes in mm. and they just start picking at it or asking you questions. It's like, I just right, want to yeah. watch this. Yeah, just yeah, just yeah. get it out of my face. And I kind of like in that way, it was less embarrassment and more just annoyance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Like you, you don't get this, you know, this is my thing. Kind yeah. Of out, yeah. Kind of thing. yeah. 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 Cause yeah, Garrett's trying to, yeah. Like you say, he's trying to pick it, isn't he? Mm. He's trying he's to sell, he's trying to analyze. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's basically, you know, it's like, he, he is the same. Well, you're just silly, isn't it? You know, you're, you're ridiculous. This isn't yeah. how spies work. <laughs> and Bashir's like, yeah, but you don't understand. Yeah. This is my, this is my fancy. This is my performance. This is my, yeah. 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 You don't get it, Garrett, because you're from Cardassia and you have no, you have no imagination. But yeah. It, it, it's interesting how are you right in that yeah there, there is I suppose some level of embarrassment with it in certain ways in certain contexts one of the other things I was thinking about is you know we talked a little bit about uh, Star Trek casting theatre actors particularly casting people that versatility someone like Jeffrey Combs who, who's obviously uh, very versatile you also get in Next Generation 
with Brent Spiner, it's like at some point they realise, okay, Brent Spiner is the guy who can play all these, he doesn't just play Data, he can play all these other characters. So you do get episodes like A Fistful of Datas, where he plays like, what, I don't know, five or six different characters or something. You get even the episode Masks, where he's playing all these different characters. And I suppose it made me think, you know, one of the things about having a repertory company is that you're writing to the talents of the people that you've got. You know, you know who your cast are and you know... Uh, you know, maybe you're going to stretch them or maybe you're going to play in something that you know they can do. Maybe, I mean, Avery Brooks is certainly an interesting person as we've, you know, anyone who's seen the Captain's documentary oh. and see he's got, he's got an eccentric oh, side yes. to him. Uh, maybe when they were writing Our Man Bashir, they were thinking, actually, yeah, I, c- I can see Avery would be, would be up for doing this. You know, he can tap into that kind of like, that slightly uh, different, you know, le- less kind of straight-laced personality. So diplomatically sure. putting it um, in <laughs> But, you know, th- there is definitely that sense of like your you're kind of playing to the strengths of who you've got. And in a way, it reminds me as well, aside from the kind of repertory company, you know, going all the way back to, say, the Elizabethan theatre. I mean, you know, obviously we think of Patrick Stewart as a Shakespearean action in the Elizabethan theatre. You'd also have a company, uh, you'd have Shakespeare there writing the latest play for that company. He knows who's in, you know, he knows there's an old man with a grey beard. He knows there's, you know, whatever, these kind of young romantic leads. He knows there's uh, a fool who'll come on and, like, do kind of, ropey stand-up or whatever um, and you're kind of playing to those strengths in a way so I suppose it's a kind of interesting question from the writer's point of view when they decide to do an episode like this particularly say something like Far Beyond the Stars which obviously is primarily a very powerful kind of dramatic episode that you've got that kind of anchored very much by Avery Brooks giving this real sort of powerhouse uh, you know dramatic performance but you've also got characters like say Michael Dorn in that episode who plays this kind of quite flirty quite charming very laid back very easygoing baseball player very much very much the opposite of Worf and you kind of think well where did that you know where did that idea come from is that because they obviously they know what Michael Dorn is like in real life he probably isn't you know, let's hope probably isn't like Wolf, you know and it's that kind of like yeah we'll, we'll give him something a bit different to do this week we'll give him something different to play and then there's also the situation sometimes in the series where people are playing different versions of themselves, of, the, of their own character mm. at different time periods. So I'm thinking of like Picard playing an older version of himself mm-hmm. um, or a younger version of himself. I mean, there's more than one case of that, isn't there? Or Odo. Or Even Odo, in Children yeah. of Time, you get the Odo that's like whatever it is, 200 years Or the younger older. Odo when he first meets Kira and he's like less sure of himself and he's his first investigation. Yeah, and I get—I mean, I guess you maybe like the sort of flashback things you you get. I don't know. I'm personally, I'm never quite as convinced by that. I mean, I, I, I not that I—I I think that flashback episode is great, but I suppose there are only flashing back a few years. I always struggle a little bit. I know people love this episode, and I, I do understand why. But first flight in Enterprise, I think, is a great episode, but. There is no way that Scott Bakula looks like he's, or, or even seems like he's, however, whatever it's meant to be, like, what is it, like 10, 15? So, it's some significant period of time before, and he just seems like exactly the same guy. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's, there's no sense that he's a younger version of himself. And playing, I suppose playing older is easier in a sense, because you can put on the, the beard, you can, you know, do your wrinkles, you can kind of, you know you could kind of act an old person in some ways playing a younger version of yourself is harder because it's almost like stripping away rather than adding to it um i don't know so i'm never quite as convinced when you get these kind of like yeah 10 years earlier or or whatever episodes but you're right i suppose there is the potential there to play your character slightly differently one way or another 
And I was thinking, there's one thing that seems to be a trait in a lot of the series until perhaps the kind of most recent ones is there's a lot of singers as well, for mm-hmm. better or worse. Mm-hmm. William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, then we had someone like Sean Spiner. Yeah. Yep. And then we had Avery Brooks, singer. Yep. Um, you know, Vic Fontaine, well, he essentially yeah. singer before that, you know, Jerry Ryan, and all of them get opportunities at some point or another, less so Nimoy and uh, Shatner, to sing and perform in mm. the show as well, and the writers can call upon that kind of trait as well. Or Gex McFadden, who is a, yeah. you know, a dancer. dancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Um, dancing doctor. Jonathan yeah. Frakes playing his. His trombone. Is it yeah. trombone? Yeah, yeah, I think he genuinely plays. Isn't unlike it? Brent Spiner, who I don't think plays the violin, right? As far as I know, but yeah, I think you're right. Jonathan Frakes does does play um, the trombone. Take me out to the whole suite. Where is it? Don't they make, don't they make um, Rom? Yeah, uh, play left-handed because he's actually really he's too good at baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose that's another that's another episode where people are out of their comfort zone, but they're very much playing their yeah. regular characters rather than playing someone else. But but I mean that might take us on to think of another way of looking at this, which is that even aside from getting to play a different character, Star Trek is very versatile compared to, you know, compared to, say, a police procedural. You know, a lot of long-running series, there's a kind of very much a format, especially an episodic series, for what the sort of shape of that episode is like and everyone is sort of reasonably similar. Star Trek, you can have an episode like Take Me Out to the Holosuite, which is basically like a kind of sports drama. You know, you can have an episode like The Measure of a Man, which is uh, a courtroom drama. Yeah, you're not, you can you're not have, really you know, say that in EastEnders. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, so you can go, you can spend the whole episode in a very different type of story somehow. Um, you know, in a different genre, you can have like detective genre. You can have, you know, a, a romantic comedy. You can have, you know, for example, there's uh, the DS9 episode. Is it Fascination? The, the one which is basically the Midsummer Night's yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, very light, very silly, kind of frothy. Um, and you know, and you, you can go, I mean, DS9 is probably the most, the darkest, the most dramatic, intensely dramatic of the Star Trek series. They also, I think, do the best comedy episodes. And their comedy episodes are just like a romp for 45 minutes. And then, you know, we'll get back to the story next week. Uh, and that, I suppose, if you're, you know, working on a long running series, whether as a writer, whether as an actor or whatever, that must in its own way, uh, make it less of a grind in a way, knowing that you get to do something a bit different. You get to kind of have that emotional variety in terms of what you're playing, as well as the kind of, on a more basic level, who you're playing. I think there's there's a natural sort of, whether the actors know it or not, a natural theatricality to be in Star Trek anyway. Mm. You know, even though it's a show, obviously, which very much is, is visual, you know, and it's setting space and everything like that, I still think you... Just the way it's written, the way it's performed, the very storytelling itself, it lends itself to a very theatrical way, I think. And so, so, so yeah, I think that, that when they have the chance to mix it up and play these different parts, I think they learn quickly through their craft a very much sort of on-screen theatrical ap- approach. And it's hard, it's hard to define. I think it's different for each series, but it's unlike anything else, Star Trek, in that sense. Do you know what? I think it's maybe changing as well, because, like... Um Obviously, I was lucky enough to see uh, what we leave behind a day early. Mm. And they mentioned, obviously, a lot of Deep Space Nine crew came from theatre backgrounds, mm. pretty much all to a man. Next Generation, nearly all to a man as well. Original series, it's much and such the same. But now as we kind of get more in, theatre is becoming less predominant. A lot of these people are coming from TV shows, mm. films. Jason mm. Isaacs is coming from big films. Uh, Sonequa Martin-Green coming from Walking Dead. There are less of them coming from perhaps that theatrical background. Enterprise, mm. I think, was the exact same. So when maybe we see less of them, actually, in Enterprise and Discovery going to these sorts of places with a the character, maybe they don't have the tool set 
you know, or maybe they do, it's just not been read to, but maybe it's something to ponder. I think they'd learn more. It is, yeah. And I think they'd learn, in a way, they'd become better theatre actors by being in something like Star Trek, Mm -hmm. actually. I think if they then did more theatre, I think they'd find that they'd learn things in the the, the opposite way. Green screen nowadays. Before you had the practical effects, now it's like green screen, right? Imagine there's an alien invasion force coming down. Whereas in theatre, it's like, imagine there's an alien... The similar traits, how you learn about it. Imagine there's an alien coming, yeah, Yeah. over the hill or whatever it is. Absolutely. Yeah. There's also like the sort of thing to do with like like prosthesis, you know. We mm-hmm. heard today the dis- um, discovery actors talk about the prosthesis, um, and I think that actually also does relate to theatre as well, because in theatre you're very much putting on uh, a mask for people when you're acting on stage, um, and also like heavy makeup, you know, and um, costumes and all sorts of stuff. Especially like things like I'm thinking of Shakespeare, like you mm-hmm. know, Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, the bottom. Bottom, right, who wears like a donkey's head and stuff like that. And so, when um, what's her name, Mary Mary Chifo, Mary Chifo talked about how she'd done theatre, um, sort of been trained to do sort of um, makeup work and uh, mask work, a mask yeah. work in, 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 in drama school, that she used that when she was acting in Discovery. So, I think you, I don't know, I think in Star Trek, you do have to be a very versatile actor. You're going to be required to imagine things that aren't there. You're going to be required to play completely different types of characters on a regular basis. Um, and yeah, like you said, in the storylines, they could switch, you know. One moment you might be in the mirror universe, one moment you might be in the holodeck, one moment you might be standing on a bridge, like looking at something mystical. You have to kind of play it realistically, otherwise the audience won't buy into it. And in some ways, maybe that's, maybe in some ways that is easier if you're playing an alien character. I mean, I know there have been kind of discussions about the acting styles. There was an interview, I think, that Anthony Montgomery gave uh, that's on the Enterprise Blu-rays, where he, he, he said that there, there had been this sort of edict, I think it was him that said it, that the, the aliens were kind of allowed to play it big, but the human characters had to kind of play everything, not quite deadpan, but like very straight down the line. There was not to be any kind of acting with a capital A, if you know what I mean. And that, that essentially they're being told to kind of tone it down. Um, obviously the alien characters, you know, they do have like, uh, well, like Mary Chifo said, and uh, Jeffrey Combs said the same thing, actually. You know, you get, so you've looked at the script, you kind of worked out something about your character. You look in the mirror and you see, right, this is who I am. And that kind of, what he was saying was that's the point where he decides, okay, now I get who Wayun is, or now I get who Brunt is or whatever, because I'm seeing them in front of me. And what Mary Chifa was saying this morning was actually it was helpful to her that she looked so different from herself because she could actually see a different person and then try to sort of embody that person and kind of be that person. That's harder, I suppose, if you're, you know, Patrick Stewart who doesn't ever get to have the, the prosthesis and so on. But then he's got his, you know, background in Shakespeare and Weekly Rep and everything to fall back on, uh, you know, when he's required to... I mean, I suppose like the inner light would be a good example of when he's required to do something very much outside of the kind of box in a way or outside of the regular kind of remit. Well speaking of the opposite of what you were saying about um, that episode we, we, you know, we've done Mary Chifo and having the, the you know, makeup and second, helping her second completion role as well like a Voyager episode Body and Soul where you've got uh, Jerry Ryan trying mm. to imitate um, Rob Cargo but she's got nothing to yeah. almost aid her other than having watched him for so many years so yeah. kind of like the opposite. And I actually that think one. that's a very interesting episode because I, I mean, I'm not. I said this last night, and people were shocked. I'm, I, I like Seven and Nine as a character. I'm not the biggest fan of the way that Jerry Ryan plays that character sometimes. But that episode, I watched, and I was like, "Wow, she's a really good actress." You know, she's she, she's she's. It, so it's obviously like well, the thing that I'm not wild about is a choice. It's not that she can't 
do something else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you see someone do something else, and you're like, oh, I wasn't expecting that of them. I wasn't expecting that level of comedy, that level of kind yeah. of lightness. And you do get that. Funnily enough, I saw, um, I don't know if you see it so much in Next Gen, but it was a real revelation for me seeing Patrick Stewart on stage when he did his Christmas Carol, which he was doing all the way that they, all the time they were doing Next Gen. And I suppose because I sort of thought of him as Captain Picard, I thought of him as this very serious kind of, um, you know, this kind of sort of almost sort of patriarchal, quite sort of stern character in a way. And in that Christmas Carol, yes, he plays Scrooge, and obviously Scrooge does that. That's the reason he, he he chose that book. But he also plays all the female characters. He plays all the children, and he imbues them with this real kind of lightness and silliness and kind of uh, something totally different. And for me, that was a real revelation seeing someone play, seeing him play like the absolute opposite of his comfort zone in a way. Um, you know, and obviously maybe not everyone gets to go quite that far, but Star Trek can stretch actors to, to definitely do something that is, is not what you expect from them. We've got that episode, uh, I can't the title, um, where um, the crew of DS9 take on all the Jazz CS former hosts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good that's it. That's yes, it. That's yeah, it. That's yeah, it. Yeah, um, yeah. Which that, you know, like you've got Quark, you know, uh, well, I'm assuming like, <laughs> you know, like braiding on coat yeah. someone's hair and, the, <laughs> and then, you know, he, and, and the host allows uh, him to come out and he, uh, it is, it's quite jarring seeing that difference between someone who's not at all like that and then goes really soft and, and again of course we get Avery Brooks playing the like really weird psychic <laughs> 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 has anyone got any final thoughts before we um, uh, I think we should give the last word to Tony to given to her to uh, to <laughs> Tony's been having a nap over here I think no I'm just waiting for the chance to jump in jobbing actors appearing in different roles in Star Trek, Ethan Phillips appeared as the doorman mm, when you point. mentioned yeah. Dixon yeah, yeah, yeah. going in and shooting up everybody. Yeah. So I wonder how many other actors have appeared as themselves. But then Ethan is, we know him as Neelix, so other actors would, they're not heavily made up, so. Well, it's the advantage of having the makeup, it almost allows you to be more incognito somehow like maybe Renee Jeffrey Combs um, would never have Renee had that career in Star Trek Enterprise? if he'd been what was this Renee's uh, yeah that's true he was in that episode of Enterprise yeah you do get that that kind of not just crossover of characters but crossover of actors you know dropping them in into a different role well it's been fun talking about weekly say weekly track weekly rep uh, <laughs> <laughs> here in here in Birmingham Birmingham at the um destination star trek convention and thank you all for joining me we've got to head off and make a beeline for kate mulgrew's panel but this is not the only thing we've been talking about on track FM this week so here's a listen to some of the other things that you might have missed elsewhere on the network previously on trek.fm standard orbit it has no opposable appendages so i'm not sure how it like stole the pump but that be that as it may without damaging it yeah, it's per- in perfect condition. Oh, yeah, here it is back. No acid burns on it. Yeah, it's fine. You know, just like you unscrewed it from the thing, you know, really carefully. And Anyway, because this is a good episode, we're going to let that go. If this was a bad episode, we'd be like, this is so stupid. Earl Grey. Did we- I have a feeling we had we talked about Echo Paca, uh, Papa 607, didn't we? We, ta- oh, we didn't yes, talk we did. about it on a... Well, we were talking about it a little bit before we started recording on the role-playing one. Right. Oh, that's right. That's what you were thinking of. Okay. Little secret thing our listeners didn't hear. <laughs> All right, 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 right. Because <laughs> you had like your your camera drone that was showing us the dice rolls that you had, and you called it Echo Papa Six Hundred Seven. 
That's right. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's right. I know. But you do these things and you're like, did we record that? Did listeners hear that? <laughs> I was like, I remember that. I was like, I don't remember. I was like, it, was, it, was it a character? No. <laughs> no, <Nope, So>. no. <nope. laughs> Literary treks. So this, of course, leads to a whole bunch of weird temporal shenanigans and paradoxes and that sort of thing as they figure out what they have to do to change history so that they don't it doesn't turn out like it does in the alternate future in book two, but at the same time not changing their past history so that they're not destroyed with the rest of the universe. And oh my god, I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> Warp 5. They've determined that they have to get to the Guardian of the Galaxy. Guardian of the Galaxy. <laughs> Guardian of Forever. Oh my goodness. They we can get- work in the Guardians of the Galaxy. It could work. That would just be crazy. They have to work in the Guardian of Forever because somehow the Guardian of Forever is actually was created by the Temporal Cold War people. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons' website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at, at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right. <laughs> <laughs>